know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast. Today we have Patrick Atkinson. So after North Dakota native Patrick Atkinson graduated from Minnesota State University at Moorhead in 1981, he turned down a lucrative corporate job to work with runaways, people involved in prostitution, and gang members. Two years later, Patrick moved to Central America, where he began a 25-year international career in war zone reconciliation and post-war reconciliation. He's been knighted, you guys. He's the recipient of numerous human rights awards, including the Guatemalan Congressional Medal for Mayan, saving Mayan Indian lives during the Guatemala Civil War. And he is the subject of a biography called The Dream Maker by Monica Hannon. So pick that up. He's the founder and CEO of the Institute for Trafficked, Exploited, and Missing Persons. It's called iTempt. You can find it at itempt.org. Also, God's Child Project. You can find that at godschild.org. And the Atkinson Center. Find that at atkinsoncenter.org. He's the author and co-author of seven books. And he's simultaneously working on his eighth and ninth book. When he's not being shot at, knifed, caught in car bombings, or traveling worldwide advocating on behalf of abused, abandoned, and human trafficking victims, Patrick resides in Central America, and he also resides in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So welcome, Patrick. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And, you know, and thank you also for the work you're doing with this podcast the work you're doing at the university. I mean, you're doing wonderful things. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So how does someone go from a college graduate, a very nice prestigious university to working on the streets with some of America's most vulnerable people? Well, you know, actually it was a fluke. It was never part of the plan when I went to college and it's never anything I would ever have seen happening, you know? So it's a good example of sometimes you just have to listen to your gut and do what you know is right, regardless what people tell you. So mm -hmm. I came from Bismarck, went to, came to Minnesota, first one out of our family to leave the state, actually to leave Bismarck to go to college, and um, was a freshman. In our freshman year, we ran as a pack. We had, you know, I had probably 10 guy friends and we had 10 lady friends, you know, students, females. And together, we ran as a big group of 15, 20 people to the parties, to the, to the dances, to the football games. And it was a great bunch. But at the end of the freshman year, summer came, everybody went their own way. And at the end of the summer, something terrible had happened. And that's that all my friends came back and all of my guy friends had gotten girlfriends over the summer. And all of the girls in our group had gotten boyfriends over the summer. 
and I wasn't one of them. I wasn't, you know, and I didn't know what to do because I love the fact that we we're running as a big bunch. I didn't know how to get a college girlfriend, to be honest. I, I just didn't. So I talked to friends and I was a little bit in a panic and, and they said, go volunteer. So I went to the campus volunteer center. And while I was there, I looked at all of these different job postings. And there was one of them that had 23 female students signed up, no guys. And I wasn't a math major or anything, but I looked at that and I said, I've got a chance of meeting someone here. I didn't even care what the opportunity was, but it was, it was for a crisis line. Now crisis line, there was about 45 seconds of training and they said, don't tell them your real name. Don't let them come to where you are and don't go to where the problem is. You have to be completely anonymous. Well, you working a crisis line, you, you're really you and the phone and who's ever on the other side. We took calls from about five different states and that took me from the innocence of the Norman Rockwell-like town of Bismarck into the underbelly of the beast, presenting me into phone calls that came in with women and boys and girls and men talking about domestic violence, drug addiction, um, incest, uh, boys and girls running away onto the streets, getting, getting picked up, getting drugged, getting raped, getting beaten up, uh, uh, turning, turning tricks to, turn, to do a child prostitution, to make child pornography for somebody else's benefit, kids getting murdered, kids seeing one parent murder another parent, and mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a family secret. You know, nobody knew about it outside of the family. Um, it, kids t being taken from farms to little towns, little towns to midtowns, midtowns to the larger metro areas, you know, being sucked into this underground railroad, mm -hmm. which would take them into the human trafficking networks of the United States and sometimes being sold overseas. When I graduated from college, I graduated with two degrees and um, had some wonderful corporate job opportunities, great ones. But I said, you know, I've taken these calls from these boys and girls and women. They've been asking for help. They were trying to get off the streets. Maybe, just maybe I'll take a year or two and see if I can find some of them. Yes. And so how did you even begin? Well, so, I, so I, my first stop was New York City. Um, I, I, I was working in the South Bronx and uh, South Bronx and then also extended that work into Times Square. Times Square back in the early 1980s was not what it is today. Right now it's Disney and bleachers and clean shops and streets and very heavily policed. It's probably one of the securest places in the United States. Back then it was run down strip bars, run down um, prostitution hostels that were very, very thinly advertised, very much out in the open. You could not walk down the streets without every 10 or 15 feet having someone come up to you and say, Drugs, drugs, sex, sex, you know, boys, boys, girls, girls. What do you want? I got it for you. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, you would get that. And what we would do, we'd always work as a pair. What we would do is we would look for kids, women, boys, girls who were there against their will. Either they're there because of survival sex, they were suffering Stockholm syndrome, they had something that held them there, they were terrified. They had seen someone get murdered. They had seen other people getting beaten up. They themselves had been burned. They were terrified. They could not flee. Someone would say, well, just go to the police on the corner. You can't because you have so many things holding you back, which we can talk about later. Um, our option 
was to get those kids, those women, those boys, those girls out of there into a place of safety and try and get them home. Mm-hmm. And you did that. And what, what, what would happen? What's the experience? How did you connect them then back home? And were there any issues? Well, the first thing we would do is we would try and, 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 and get them clean. If they were on drugs, we'd get them the medical help. If they're suffering psychiatric problems, and they almost always were, uh, we worked a lot with Bellevue and you know, other hospitals to, to deal with those immediate medical issues and get permission from the boy, the girl, the young woman, sometimes the young, sometimes the young man, but not less so than the other, um, to contact their parent and get them to safety, to get them home, to get them to a relative. I, I did that work for three years, and then I burned out. Um, and I did not burn out because of the sex, the drugs, the violence, the bloodshed that we saw, the murders, the body pieces we picked up. I did not burn out because of that or because working 20, 24, 26, 28, 30, 32 hours. You know, if you're in the middle of something and you couldn't leave it because, you know, if you left that effort, it was going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. That did not burn me out. What burned me out was when we got a boy, a girl, a teenager off the streets into safety and they would talk to them and they would say, I am so tired. I am exhausted. I want to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they tell us what happened, the, the sex abuse, the physical abuse, the drug addiction, the alcoholism, mom's boyfriend hurting them, whatever it was. And we said, we can deal with that. And they'd give us permission finally to call the parent and we'd say, good news, we have the child. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen? Would the child return home then? Well, you know, it was... It, it happens more often than I would ever want to count, but always you would go, you would hear on the other line, you'd hear the person on the other line go, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they've got him, they've got her, they found her. Go get Ralph, go get your daddy, go get your mom, get your mom on the phone. And then they'd be in and they'd be all excited. You could hear the tears coming down their face. You could hear the, the excitement, the emotion. Sometimes they'd put you on speakerphone or they'd hold the phone up and you could hear kids in the background crying and saying, you know, we've got, we found Nancy, Nancy, mm-hmm. Nancy's on the phone. I want to talk to Nancy, Nancy being a 15, 14, 13, 16 year old girl mm-hmm. could be from anywhere in the States. And it happened so many times, so many times that at one point, one of the parents or an aunt or a grandmother or somebody who was there on the phone would say, wait a second, we're, they weren't involved in that sex stuff, were they? And, and, and we would say, it makes no difference. She's safe. He's, he, he wants to come home. Mm-hmm. You know, your son, your daughter wants to come home. All the problems can be worked out. Whoa, you're not telling me they were involved in that sex stuff. And we'd go, it, I can't tell you that because of course you have client confidentiality issues. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you that but I can tell you they're safe. And then you'd hear this, if they're involved in that sex stuff, you can keep them. We don't want them anymore. At that point, you'd feel this, this rising sense of fear that this phone call is gonna go bad and you say, it makes no difference. Listen, let's, let's get together. Let's get a phone interview. Let's get somebody in your hometown. Let's get your child home. Mm-hmm. Now, if they're involved in that sex stuff, we don't want them. They're dead to us. Yeah, and, such and the stigma, the shame, um, 
It's, it's crazy. And so that's real. Those are really the issues that burned you out. And I mean, at that point, did you lose hope? What happened after that? Well, the toughest part was you, you would, you would then have to call the boy or girl who was very nervous, but very excited. They, their dream was that mom and dad would be exactly what you had in the beginning of the phone call, jumping up and down and saying, you know, we found Mark, we found Nancy, we found Tommy, we found Sally and, 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 and time to come home. And, you know, and they, they were already thinking about, okay, I can get clean. I can get shaved. I have my bedroom. I can, I can go back to school. My friends, I'll tell my friends stories. They're living out ahead of you, this, mm-hmm. this dream. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down with them and say, I've got some tough news. Um, your parents won't talk to you and, and they won't take you back. Mm. And, and you would see not just physically, but spiritually and psychically and, and emotionally, you'd see their, 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 their hopes drop to the ground and shatter. And then we, you know, we had almost no choice but to get them into the foster care network, which is generally very poorly run with a lot of bad incidences, sex abuse, physical abuse, neglect, abandonment. Um, And the kids would be there for maybe two weeks, three weeks tops and run away. Quite often running back into the hands, back knocking at the door of the very person who had been raping them, sexually abusing them, prostituting them out using them for pornography um, and saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm sorry I left. Um, can I come back? Yes. yes. And I, I just feel that in my heart and soul. And I know lots of advocates around the world, they understand that because it's not the burnout as much of the system and even the bureaucracy if you're in a complex system the street outreach, if you're in a system that has no real funding for you to continue to job, your real heartbreak is taking someone who's already been physically, emotionally, spiritually battered, abused, exploited, taken advantage of, and then being involved in indirectly in the profound heartbreak of someone when their family doesn't step up, when the system doesn't step up, that kind of um, heartbreak is just almost too much to bear. So what did you do after you had that three-year experience? You know, so I I did that work again and again and again, and and there's always an incident. That's like the, 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 the needle that breaks the camel's back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that incident was a 12 year old boy from Brook from Baltimore who had run away, very, very wealthy family, a very wealthy family. And he ran away to New York city. Uh, he had a backpack filled with his parents. He had a pistol in there. They stole from his dad. He had jewelry. He had stolen from his mom. And we're talking, you know, the top one percenters. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a lot of cash in there. Um, and he was walking down the streets in, in uptown uh, New York City, Man- uptown Manhattan. He was stopped by someone, a godsend Good Samaritan, who talked to the boy, said, what are you doing here? And the kid gave him a real brief story. And the guy walked him over to a phone booth. There were phone booths back then, pre-cell phone, put in the money and called us and said, you guys got to get here now. Mm-hmm. And we, we um, went there. The man was standing there. 
The kid was safe. Again, just an absolute guardian angel. And we put the kid in the car and we took him back. We talked to him. We found out about the mom's boyfriend had been hurting him. Again, very wealthy family in Baltimore. And we called the mom and we said, listen, your son is here. And she goes, well, that, da, da, da. He stole my jewelry. And da, da, da. He stole his daddy's gun. And I said, listen, he's 12 years old. You know, he could have been killed. He could have been hurt. His life could have been altered forever. All of that could have been ripped off as it is. It's right here. It, you know, he made a mistake. He screwed up. Her response was, well, he got himself to New York City from Baltimore. He can get himself home. Hmm. I'm like, he's 12 years old. And, it, right. and she goes, well, he can take a bus. And like, well, we'll drive him down. If you guys drive him down, I won't receive him because he's got to learn. He's a man now. He's got to learn to get himself home. If he can get up there, he can get home. He's 12 years old. Um, She said she'd send a car. Of course, she had no intention of doing that. Uh, We put the kid where he was. We had an escort with him. Uh, The kid bolted. The mom had never sent a car. She had contacted him separately. They had had a separate communication we didn't know about. And she said the whole thing all over expletively, you know, filled with uh, expletives saying, Mm -hmm. you know, you can get yourself back here. The kid was out there. He ran away. We never found him again. We did find out, we did hear through the grapevine that he was dancing in a a, a child prostitution bar and was selling his body at the age of 12 and 13. All the mother had to do was send her driver. She she had that kind of wealth and she chose not to. And that I went home that night when we found out what, what the boy's fate had been. We looked for him, we couldn't find him. He, he had been downmarketed, as it happens in the human trafficking networks. He had been downmarketed from New York City because he was so young, he was so identifiable, into a lower market, into a different region. He had been downmarketed out and we knew we had lost him forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I went home that night and I, and I looked out the window because I, I was living on 44th Street and 8th Avenue. Um, and I looked out the window, I was just watching the street life and I started to cry. And I knew instantly I had to leave. Wow. And what is down marketing actually for people? Down marketing, imagine you buy, we're going to say that you only drive $400,000 cars. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you buy a four hundred thousand dollar car because you your 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 representative at the agency calls you and says, you know, the two thousand twenty one models are already in. I can get you one four hundred thousand dollars. You you have the money, the time, the means, the opportunity, and you say, I'll take it, and you take it and you drive it for three or four months. And he calls you and he says, guess what? I got a sample twenty twenty two in, and you say, I'll take it. So you take your twenty twenty one car. And you down market it, you sell it, not for 400000 that you paid for it, but let's say one seventy-five. Mm-hmm. And I buy it for one seventy-five, and I drive it for two years. But I also like new cars that don't have any scratches or dings or rust or problems. And then I down sell it for 175 to 90 And then it goes from the next person down to 45 mm-hmm. down to 12 And the last person buys it for 3000 bucks and drives it into the ground. The same thing happens with people. Mm-hmm. People are, there's, there's, there's for every imaginable um, sexual fantasy taste preference, if you can imagine it in the deepest recesses of your mind, that is somebody's peak sexual fantasy. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a value 
in product. If I can present to you the product clean, new, fresh, no matter what it is, your, your greatest fantasy, that'll, that'll command a premium price. Mm-hmm. So let's say we get a 12-year-old kid, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl. She comes in off the street. She's a runaway. Um, she's from Iowa. Premium price. Premium price. Mm-hmm. Clean, no scars, no drugs. She's a virgin. Premium price. Someone will pay top dollar for that. Mm-hmm. They take her. They run her as a product mm-hmm. for two, three, four months. And then they also want another premium product. So they'll take that girl and they'll downsell her to maybe to a friend or a group of friends who t- use her for three, four, or six months and then downsell her again. And, and as she drops down, so she might go from a very high class call girl service or even a private individual into a high class call service, into a uh, walking the streets, into bar dancing, into very low grade abusive relationships. Mm-hmm into um, over, being sold into the overseas market. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course she's aging and so that brings the price down as well. Just like a car, yeah. yep. Just like a car, she's getting dings and dents and she's getting, mm-hmm. she's getting STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. Mm-hmm. She might be developing a drug or alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. She might have the bruises, the cuts. She might have, um, you know, she's, she's, she's no longer 16 and, and in someone's opinion, premium, she might, she might now be 23, 27, 30. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it just like the car being down marketed. I hate to use the metaphor and compare a human being with a car, but it is by far the best metaphor and analogy mm-hmm. when we talk about the down marketing of a human person. Well, and so when you went home and you decided I have to do something else, What's that something else that you started to do? Because you stayed very much in the area of helping vulnerable people. So, so what did you do next? Well, so when I was in New York City, and right about that same time, I, I read a newspaper article about four Mary Nollers out of, I believe it was out of Ohio, and might have even been Toledo, Ohio, mm-hmm. who were, who were uh, three of them were Mary Noll nuns. One was a a lay person, if, they, if it wasn't Toledo, it might've been Cincinnati or Cleveland, but it was one of those three cities who was, they were volunteering, they're working with villagers in El Salvador. And they'd been met at the airport by members of the El Salvadorian National Army, taken off uh, against their will. Uh, they, were, they were beaten, they were raped, they were walked into a ditch and, and, and machine gunned down and killed and very crudely buried. And there was, there was the outrage with that, but. That's, that brought me into the whole topic of the third world violence that was going on, particularly in Central America. Um, I got on a plane in July of that year, went down to Guatemala City, where there had been three, 400,000 people who had been killed. Hundreds of thousands of people disappeared. Uh, now a new verb, someone being disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, hundreds of thousands of kids being orphaned, almost exclusively Mayan children you know, the genocide that was going on. Um, so I, did, I had picked Guatemala as the country and got off the plane July 19, 1983. Got off the plane with the intent of volunteering for six to 12 months to uh, work on a, a farm in the northern part of the country up in the conflict zone. Because by 
physically being there as an international, as an American, that dramatically reduced the possibility or the chances of the Guatemalan National Army coming in, raping the women, committing atrocities, killing the children, taking the children off to be child soldiers. Hmm. So by being physically present, that, 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 that helped him just in that way. And I said, you know, I'll learn some salsa, I'll learn Spanish, um, I'll do a good thing for a year or two. And um, what happened instead was the plane landed and I saw this huge group of people, mostly kids, holding up this big banner that said, welcome director. And I looked around and they were cheering when the plane landed. And uh, I looked around and everyone was getting off the plane and nobody was paying much attention to that group. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, yeah, who's director? Tune in to hear the rest of Patrick's fascinating career as an anti-trafficking advocate around the world. And hey, if you have not done so yet, join the Emancipation Nation Network. Just go to Google, type in the words Emancipation Nation Network and join us there. In the network, you'll find everything you need to be a skilled, compassionate, and connected advocate. With all the information you need at your fingertips, including jobs, grants, live speakers, courses, workshops, preview information on the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Conference that's coming up in September, get connected to advocates across the U.S. and around the world, and more. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.